This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in Massachusetts. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist It's Amelia. Welcome back to the 50 Feminist States podcast. It's already episode 13, which is particularly fitting for this week because we're going to talk about magic and witches and political resistance. Before we get to that, just a reminder that you can sign up for the 50 Feminist States newsletter at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. If you subscribe, you'll get updates on podcast things, road trip happenings, and much, much more. I love the little list of people I write to there, and I'd really like for it to grow bigger, especially as we start to dream about future seasons and making our way to the other 30 plus states that I'll visit on the course of this project. So again, please head on over to 50feministstates.com slash newsletter to subscribe. If you're listening on your phone, there should be a link in the show notes and whatever listening app you prefer. So just click through to 50feministstates.com slash newsletter and subscribe today. This week, we're in Massachusetts, where I traveled to Boston and Salem. You've likely heard of both these cities as they have long histories in the American imaginary stretching back to the 17th century. Boston was the home of early Puritan colonists and one of the earliest sites of the American Revolution with the Boston Tea Party. And Salem was the site of the heinous witch trials that led to the massacre of over 20 women that have been immortalized in American history. And of course, both these places were occupied by indigenous tribes for centuries before these events, which makes their relatively newfound glory as sites of emancipation and freedom particularly ironic and upsetting. We always have to remember that the places that United States history looks to as the sites of political liberation are the exact same places that indigenous communities look to as the sites of enslavement, colonization, and violence. And we have to be able to hold both of those things together and work toward restorative justice in precisely those same spaces. In this week's episode, we're going to dive into the middle of these overlapping histories of magic and culture and colonialism and resistance that honestly stretch back even farther than these places themselves. We'll start by hearing from artist and academic Lakshmi Rangapal about her academic research and her music and sound installation work, and then open a conversation with two women from the Salem magic shop, Housewitch, about their project, Witch the Vote. At the end, we'll circle back to Lakshmi and bring all of these voices together. It's a really exciting dialogue about the politics of colonialism and white supremacy and the power of witchcraft, if it's decolonial, that I'm really excited to share with you. And I'm especially excited about this since it's being shared from the state that is home to Plymouth Rock, one of the earliest sites of settler colonialism in the U.S. I can't wait for you to hear these truly thoughtful insights. So without further ado, here's Lakshmi. My name is Lakshmi Ramgopal, and we are sitting in my office in the Department of the Classics at Harvard University. I am a postdoc at Harvard. Um, my work is in Roman history. I have a PhD in classics from the University of Chicago. So I've always been really interested in very old things, and I have never had a good answer for how I got involved in classics because 
my interest in antiquity is something I feel like I was born with. Like when I was in middle school, I would check out piles of books from the library on Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan and just read them for fun. So when I got to college and started taking electives, um, I ended up in a classics class on Roman satire and fell in love with those texts immediately. So after that, I got some really great opportunities to spend time abroad in Rome, um, studying abroad for a semester and traveling all over Italy and then also joining an excavation in the southern UK of a Roman villa and just really experiencing this kind of work from a lot of different kinds of perspectives and studied Latin and Greek all through college. And by the time I got to the end of college, I decided I wanted to know more and ended up pursuing a PhD in the field. What I'm working on right now at Harvard is turning my dissertation into a book. And what it really is about is how imperial structures and cultures spread when states aren't themselves actively involved in that process through sending out armies or founding colonies. But like how, you know, Roman culture or ways of organizing people and places disperses simply through mobility and migration. So it's a way of writing the history of Rome from the perspective of the provinces um, and from the, I wouldn't say go as far as saying from the perspective of the peoples who were conquered by the Romans, because we don't have a whole lot of evidence for that, but at least trying to understand how they adapted to or adjusted to these pretty significant changes in power that occurred because of the growth of um, the Roman Empire. So I don't know how to introduce myself as a musician because it's becoming increasingly complicated. And that has a lot to do with the fact that like my work as an artist has become increasingly multidisciplinary and taken me in directions that I really did not expect when I first started Lycanthia. So Lycanthia is like the is basically the name I give to a project under which I release and write ambient, kind of drony, often improvisational music. And I started this project in 2013 and released my debut record, Migration, in 2014. And for that project, mostly worked with synths and um, guitar drones. And when I performed those pieces live, we do a lot of improvising based off of composed pieces that were on the album um, that involved a lot of vocal improvisation and processing and um, as part of that, I would draw heavily on my background as a Carnatic vocalist. So Carnatic music is a form of classical South Indian um, music. And after I released that album, I spent several years struggling with writer's block. And um, so because of that, just mostly focused on just performing and becoming a better vocalist and performer. And now I am getting ready to release my next record, which is mostly written and half recorded. The music on this record is pretty different. It the songs are a lot more sort of a lot warmer. There's no synth on anything anymore. <laughs> it's mostly the Shruti box um, along with violin and cello. So it's like, yeah, there's more sort of like live instrumentation on it, but still a lot of drone. Whereas my first record, Migration, was a little bit more abstract thematically. This record has a lot more to do with personal um, experiences that I've had in the last couple of years, mostly like a really significant breakup and um, the death of my grandmother and the birth of my niece. Um, my niece was born two months after my grandma was born. And all of those things happened within the same three month period. And like amid like significant, like sort of health issues I was having and career changes. And so <laughs> it was like, I have to process this some way. And the only way I know how to do that right now is through song. So all of that is like the Lycanthia stuff, but I've also been creating sound installations, which 
I mostly do under my name, although it all appears on my like Canthia website too. And the sound installation work also actually emerged from my grandmother's death. Um, my grandmother was essentially a third parent when I was growing up and her death was very sudden and unexpected and like the circumstances of it were very traumatic and um, I was actually with her when she passed and it was like a very kind of it was a significant kind of loss of self and a loss of access to my cultural heritage Um, it really reshaped my relationship with my mother because I saw her lose her mother and I kind of suddenly realized I needed to come to terms with the fact that I would lose her And soon after my grandmother died, I created a sound installation called Male, which consists of a Hindu altar with images of deities as well as women in my mother's side who are both living and deceased and included on the altar like a diary that people could touch and read and it included like fabricated entries by my great-grandmother and my grandma, my mom and me that I wrote um, about each other and just about our own lives based on what I knew about all of us. And then the sound component was um, recordings between of me and my mom and grandma in English and Tamil about my grandmother's life, uh, mostly in Tamil, but also a little bit in English. And so this was this first installation that I made. And so that was sort of the the beginning of like a whole new era of like our body of work for me as an artist. And um, since then, I've shown Molly a couple of times and also um, created other sound installations that were even bigger. And along with those fairly complex multidisciplinary ensemble performances that have involved performances of music I've written and released as Lycanthia, but also um, kind of choreographed movement stuff that I've created based on my training as a dancer in Bharatanatyam dance. And so everything is kind of like confused and like mixed up at this point. (laughs) So when we talk about like hybrid identities, I feel like that's a lot of what's going on with my work as an artist. Um, Because I, you know, I grew up bicultural and so for me like my training as an artist comes from so many different places and influences and so those are the things I draw on. After hearing from Lakshmi about how both her academic work and her artistic work take on these themes of hybrid identities and trying to negotiate place and space and generation and identity simultaneously, I asked a little bit more about her personal and family history and their relationship to her work. My parents immigrated to the United States from India in the 70s. And I think like a lot of people in their generation of Indian immigrants, they thought they would go back and then they ended up never going back and having kids and stuff. And so it was really important to them that their children have a really sort of um, robust knowledge of their cultural heritage. And so my mom had me learn Um, had me take Carnatic vocal lessons early on. And Carnatic music is like a broad term to describe a classical tradition of sound, I guess a classical sound tradition that comes from South India. And it doesn't just include vocal kind of music, but also includes like other instruments and like the violin and the flute, for example. And um, it's essentially just like a completely different system of sound that's organized according to principles that are different from the principles that what we would call like Western music um, is organized around um, the different kinds of scales and so on. And um, so even though I did take like flute and violin at school growing up outside of Boston, um, I would say that my primary like influence 
as a musician came from the Carnatic vocal lessons that I took because like that was also the music that my parents played all the time at home and they kind of disapproved of like any of the pop music and stuff that I wanted to play and so um the way I even hear sound and think about sound is like fundamentally shaped by by those sounds by by Carnatic sounds as a dancer um I I actually don't know like when I have no recollection of ever deciding I wanted to be a dancer but I do know that I asked my mom to put me in Bharatanatyam dance classes and Bharatanatyam is one of the major classical dances of India there are like eight or nine of them it's a kind of combination of like aggressive athletic kind of dance steps paired with like really graceful kind of performances of like feeling that that are called abhinaya and it's almost like you're acting but without actually saying words and um i trained in bharatanatyam for seven or eight years until i did what's called an arangetram which is literally means ascending the stage so the dancer dances solo like a set number of pieces generally for about two hours and that's kind of like the moment when you have become a dancer and then I stopped dancing after that. And it was basically because it became this thing that I – it went from being something that I really wanted to do to something that my mom really wanted me to do. And it, like, just became really complicated. <laughs> so I didn't want to do it anymore. Basically forgot I was a dancer for, like, two decades. And then about a year ago after I was invited by the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago to perform, decided – I wanted to like reintroduce um, some of those like movements from dance into my performance. And now it's become something I'm doing increasingly often um, as an artist. So I guess in that sense, when I tell people I do, I experiment with my music or with my sort of movement work. The way I experiment is I experiment. I, I take like traditional Indian forms of sound and dance and kind of do things with them that they weren't initially created to do. Um, so in that sense, like my work is experimental. But it's not experimental in the sense that, like, I think people in sort of Western music circles, like new music circles, use that term. I was introduced to Lakshmi's work through the Chicago music scene and these sorts of Western music circles that she mentions here, and did get to see some of the ways in which it was described as both traditional and experimental, and how Lakshmi specifically negotiated those terms at different moments, embracing and resisting them. Hear more from her now about some of her artistic choices and how she sees her work in local and larger music communities. One reason I don't translate things in that sense is because I don't want to center whiteness or Western Europeanness or North Americanness, and in translating, that's what I think I'm doing, and so I leave it as it is. Um, and I, I think it still holds value, even if it isn't understood, quote unquote. Um, but I guess I mean, what's alienating, I think, is that when people, I mean, the scene where I have spent the most of my time as an artist has been in Chicago, and the. Chicago has an incredibly diverse scene, um, but the part of that scene socially that I have been involved in is really white, um, and that has been really frustrating, <laughs> as I have expressed often on the internet or even in person to people. Um, it's It can be really clicky. Um, I think people have a pretty narrow sense of what counts as experimental music. Um, people are very resistant to criticism and to self and to criticizing themselves. And that creates 
a scene that I don't think is particularly inclusive. And when people do include, they do it in a way that often feels like it's fetishizing identity and which can, as a result, be as othering as it is including. So people will describe my work as like, I mean, I have like a lot of different, I have some conflicting feelings about this. They'll describe my work as being like Indian or, or whatever. And sometimes I just want to be like, I'm an artist. Like, it doesn't have to be qualified <laughs> or contextualized. Like, of course, that's important too. And by removing it, maybe we are erasing something that's like fundamental and important to it. But um, I'm not seeking to necessarily be seen as like the brown artist who's like decolonizing spaces and stuff like that. There was a while, I think, in my like sort of activist, quote unquote, activist work and like arts circles where I did want that but now I don't see it as being like productive at all because it usually seems to lead white people to just like continue down the same path but like thinking they're doing something different than what they were doing before um so I find that really difficult and um people have a lot of like preconceived ideas about what they think I'm doing and um (laughs) I like I did an interview after this big installation I had at Lincoln Park Conservatory in Chicago closed. I had a huge performance in that and we did a lot of singing in Hindi and Tamil for that. And the woman who interviewed me asked me, she basically didn't realize that like we were singing in another language and asked, basically asked if they were like made up sounds. And I just like didn't know. I didn't even know how to respond to that. Um, I mean, that's the other problem is like there are also just like so many, there's such a lack of diversity and inclusivity in like media and among critics that um, that really also impacts like how I'm pigeonholed or whether I'm pigeonholed. My work as an artist has definitely become increasingly collaborative. I just, I'm not really interested in creating things and sharing things by myself anymore. Like I have a lot of vision and I want to work with a lot of people to make it happen because it's going to be better that way because, <laughs> I mean, I have good ideas, but they're not great unless other people are contributing to them too. And it also gives me the chance to invest in the artistic careers of other people in Chicago where my practice is based. Um, I always make sure I pay everybody as much as I can. And I want to give other artists the opportunity to perform in spaces that they've never performed in. And that way all of us grow as artists and it's I mean it's not that working with me necessarily is going to like make anyone famous or become a better artist but I think it's important to me now to create opportunities for other people when I have the opportunity to do that in that way that's like one way of giving back to the community and paying it forward now let's turn to our conversation with Paige and Cheryl of Salem Magic Shop House Witch. They're both employees at this really amazing, wonderful space that I was able to visit during my time in Salem. And through their roles in this shop, they started a new initiative called Witch the Vote, which really works to help build witchy political resistance in terms of highlighting progressive candidates and ballot initiatives across the country. Hear more from them now about how they started that project. I'm Paige. I'm the manager at House Witch. I've been here since July. I also do the Witch the Vote Instagram and yeah, lived in Salem for seven years now. My name is Cheryl. Um, I am the marketing and operations manager, director, I don't know, at here at House Witch. Been here for about 
two-ish years. And I am just constantly blown away every day by how we're able to kind of like combine like a little bit of activism with like, you know, living our lives and paying our rent. And we run Witch the Vote, which is a really important moment, I think, for like the witchy community. Um, I know there's a lot of activism out there and we're just trying to like kind of do our part to like bring attention to the elections. It really started with the witching hour, like right after the elections. Like, I mean, I was like, you know, involved in like a couple like activism related things, but like it really wasn't like a huge part of my life, like besides like some of the stuff we do with the shop. But I started like going to a lot more rallies, like a lot of people. Um, and I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's like a bad thing that more people started to get involved at that time too. Um, I think it's important and like a really small silver lining, but we as a store were like, we need to do something more than just kind of like, you know, post on Instagram, which is really important just to like spread the word. But we started the witching hour, which was an hour every month of like calling reps and senators and info sessions and things. And ultimately, unfortunately, like where people are at, like they just it's like an event that became really hard for people to get to and like mentally accept on their calendar because they were just being bombarded by so many like, you know, calls to action every day anyway. So we actually learned that like really, it really wasn't being as helpful as it could be. So um, when we were kind of brainstorming things that we could do, we ended up with like witching the election, which like, and what does that look like for us? It's, it's not just for this election. It's like something that we're trying to grow and kind of help be a part of, you know, this important progressive movement in our community. Um, and we chose to do that by donating to when we all vote and um, running this ultimately like small but important Instagram where we're just trying to promote as many progressive candidates and like highlight as many ballot questions as we can. Especially after the presidential election, it got harder and harder to make space for my spiritual practice too, and to take care of myself that way. And I know a lot of people were feeling that as well. So having the witching hour to come to and now having which the vote to reach out to people with, um, I know there are other people that are feeling kind of burnt out on the cut and dry political news. So being able to process that in a way that resonates with my spirituality and my connection to the global community is as tacky as that sounds um is is so important um we've also found that ultimately as much as like local activism is super important we are really here at like house witch we're really privileged to be able to reach out to people all over the country um and ultimately i'm not that as worried about massachusetts although like it does have its conservative pockets generally like we vote fairly progressive um, in a lot of elections. Um, I mean, there's still like tons of work to be done here, but we really were looking at our like strengths as a community. And we're like, we should really be doing something where we can reach out to like these people in red states and people who like think they're just like an island. Um, and we've managed to connect like a few people um, in red states and in areas where like there's just not a lot of people too. Like we've connected some folks like out in like, you know, the boonies of Montana and things where they're just kind of like, I don't know, like I'm witchy and progressive, but like who's out here? And then it turns out that there's like quite a few people. Um, so even just like being able to connect those like small pockets in like really conservative areas, I feel like that's just like a part of that like greater 
movement that like everyone and like all these like amazing activists are you know putting together like through the wonders of the internet because i mean how, how else are we gonna like connect those people um and it's just it's kind of great to just see that like even this like small thing that we're doing has really had an impact on some people's lives where they're like i didn't even know midterm elections were coming or like i didn't even understand that there was a progressive candidate in my area and it's like just even those few people whose minds we've like you know like shown that there's like more out there i'm like we this is success (laughs) to me like i'm like great cool let's just like scale that (laughs) well and i think with the instagram witchcraft community growing so much too and having especially such a young demographic it's great to kind of feel like we're acting as like a big sister witch for all the little witchlings who kind of don't realize the connection yet between political action and witchcraft um and watching them step into their power you know tagging us in in their stories and seeing them tagging all their friends in the post and being like let's get this done you know it's it's so it's so gratifying. It feels like we're building a little army. <laughs> I loved what Paige and Cheryl both had to say about the relationship between witchcraft and politics. And so I asked if they could talk a little bit more about how they see that relationship both historically and in contemporary society. It just makes sense that if you're going to tap into a higher consciousness and a collective power that you need to be giving something back to it and that you need to be considering everyone else's experiences. Um, And if you're not using your witchcraft for tangible (laughs) community based purposes, um, I don't think it's as effective. You know, we're, we're most effective as a group and the things that people seem to be politicizing these days, you know, everybody says, I don't want to talk about politics and what they mean is I don't want to talk about, um, women's rights and LGBT rights. And I don't want to talk about abortion access and I don't want to talk about sex work and I don't want to talk about the environment because it's political, but that's such a huge part of witchcraft and the history of it and the foundation of it that we're the ones who need to be doing something about it. Um, the witch is just this archetype that like anyone can just kind of like put on this, like calling yourself a witch, like, like kind of putting yourself in that place of power allows you to do so much more. The witch is just this like amazing archetype that we get to tap into and get to use in order to get our voices heard, whether you're queer, you're in like you're indigenous, you're black, whatever, whatever, whatever is happening for you that makes you like othered, like the witch archetype is something that you can kind of like take and like make your own, like however that fits for you. And like, we talk a lot about how like, witch can stand for like woman in total control of herself. Anyone can tap into that, like sort of like, you know, feminine side of themselves or like, and really use it for like power. And like, in this space where we're feeling really, you know, powerless in a lot of ways, because It seems like no matter what, you know, any progressive community does, there's still like yet another like Kavanaugh and we feel like we're being just like totally bogged down. It's like, well, at the very least, maybe we can kind of like band together under this like witch banner (laughs) and like, you know, keep on having a little bit of hope and like having a little bit of ability to rise above this like mess. 
I, I think the cool thing too is that every culture since the beginning of the time has had since the beginning of the time, every culture since the beginning of time has had magic and has had witchcraft of some sort. And so practicing witchcraft or magic, even differently from other cultures, it still feels so connected to everybody. And even, you know, me practicing my, you know, millennial bathtub magic, (laughs) um, it feels really beautiful to know that I'm connected with ancestors and, and people so far away who want the same things and are putting out the intentions for the same things. Um, it's, it's just that, that collective consciousness and intention that I think generates so much power, you know, it, it moves it across all borders, which is, it's so cool. (laughs) When Paige talked about her practice as quote unquote millennial bathtub magic, I couldn't help but ask more about what that means to her and how she sees it in relation to self-care being co-opted by capitalism and young witches being critiqued by older communities. Here, Cheryl and Paige talk a little bit more about their perspectives on this. I have a lot of feelings about this because I think that any generation, any younger generation by the older generations is told that they're not enough that whatever they're doing isn't good for the world and that it doesn't matter and we just don't get how the world works and ultimately every generation changes the world a little bit hopefully for the better not always but i think if what millennials are doing in order to get by is like taking a bath or like buying like a five dollar bath bomb i don't think that that's a problem and it doesn't mean that they aren't amazing activists at the same time. I do think that the commodification of the self-care market, it's gone it's gone too far in some ways. Like if we get one more press request for like, give me your like witchy self-care tips. It's like, yeah, like we totally are a self-care store. We have all kinds of things for that. But like it's been written about a thousand times. And like that's not really all House Witch is about. Like we have so much more than just like bath products and like the thing is i find that taking a bath maybe like once a week or so even a lot more than that if that's what you're doing for your like well-being and your rest time so that you can like get back out there and like call senators in the morning and make sure that every day you're like making sure that you know what's going on with the news and telling all your friends to vote and like being there for your like trans friends and being there for your community and i don't think that taking some time for self-care or like spending a few dollars on self-care is a problem because ultimately like I think a lot of us are looking at like our bank accounts and being like well I'm not gonna buy a house so I'm guessing I'm gonna buy a bath bomb like (laughs) I think that the way that economy is and the way that pay currently is structured here there aren't a lot of opportunities for some of us to really like feel like those big goals that were the markers of success for past generations are attainable I I really do think that like There's just no reason to put down something that is, you know, really good for people's mental health. Because with that, too, with that movement is coming this really frank movement of, like, people going to therapy and being really transparent about it. And, like, I think that that's, like, a really deep healing. And I think there's people, like, going back and, like, if we want to talk about this a little 
witchily, <laughs> which I don't think is a word, there's this idea of like healing ancestral wounds, especially like if people look back in their history, especially in America, there's a lot of ancestral wounds to be healed. And I think with the way politics are right now, it's bringing up a lot of that, brings up a lot of family trauma for people. And I think that taking baths and you know maybe it's because you did have therapy in the morning so you really just like wanted to like relax and then I I think that's like a deeper healing that we're we're not always seeing someone say like yeah like I went to therapy today but that maybe they also couldn't afford to go to therapy so the bath is what they're gonna do I'll also say I would never tell somebody else that they need a thing to practice witchcraft. I would never tell somebody, you can't do a spell unless you have this $28 candle with a crystal in it. I would never, ever say that. For me personally, when I say, you know, I'm doing my bathtub magic, I'm not saying I went to CVS and got a bath bomb from Suave that was shrink wrapped in plastic and made out of whatever, wherever. I'm saying my friend Erin makes really beautiful bath salts with moon magic and I want to support her business while also supporting my own mental health and my own spirituality. And like, why are you mad at me for that? You know, this whole store is, is so filled with women and independent makers who wouldn't have a space otherwise. And It makes me feel good to support that. That feels in line with my spirituality. You know, that's that's part of my practice, too, is making sure that my friends and the people that I admire for their work are properly supported for that. Um, So I, I don't see why anybody would would feel resentful of that. Maybe it's just that they don't understand or that there's been a long running history of disrespect for women's work, for fiber work, for herbal medicines, for things that they expect women to give away for free because it's in their nature to be nurturing and to provide care for people. And I think it's so witchy and so radical to see everybody starting empires you know based on that and i i would wish them nothing but so much success because honestly it'll never come close to what the evil billionaires in our world are making you know what i mean so and i would also say about the the millennial magic the bathtub magic i don't know my great great times whatever grandma back in ireland <laughs> was also adding lavender to her pillowcase before she went to bed or cracking an egg into a bowl of water to, you know, see if her children were going to be safe. Uh, it's it's nothing new. <laughs> you know, they act like witchcraft is something we just came up with. And it's somebody who's been, been sleeping for a while, apparently. <laughs> My conversation with Paige and Cheryl wrapped up by turning back to Witch the Vote and considering what they were looking forward to or what they're trying to build as the organization grows. What does it mean to be political witches? And what does it mean that witches are political? How are they thinking about this in terms of their organization? What are the specific things that they hope to do as they move forward and grow Witch the Vote to a national and maybe even global scale? Hear them reflect on these questions now. I mean, I think that 2020 is coming and um, I definitely have strong feelings about how I'd like that election to go. And I think all of us do. And really what we're hoping is that over the course of the next two years, 
we are strengthening this community that we're growing so that we know that we have reliably like, you know, several thousand people all across the U.S. that we know for a fact are like tapped in and like paying attention. And even if it's kind of not totally sure exactly like what like the big big thing which the vote might become might be like we don't really i mean we're kind of open to seeing where where which the vote goes in some ways but like really like short term sort of like medium term goals are like really strengthening our community and like providing them with a lot of resources helping be like part of the positive force that like helps us not have fascists running the country in 2020 i mean my dream if we're talking real big is that every state would have their own witch the vote so that people could start then digging into local elections and local politicians um because it i mean that's where things start changing is on the the smallest scale and as much as I want to, you know, be able to go over every single state with a fine tooth comb and break down what their government looks like, what their ballots look like and their policies look like. I would love for it to be a network. Like if you want to start a chapter of which the vote in your area and you like don't know what to do, like email us at which the vote at gmail.com and we will help you. Yeah. Oh, my God. Big goals have an official which party that you can register you know that would be oh man that's that's the dream (laughs) i have to admit that i love this idea of being a quote-unquote registered witch as opposed to uh, a democrat or a republican or an independent i think it's such a fun and powerful idea But I want to circle back, as I mentioned, to my conversation with Lakshmi and give a little bit more background on why I brought these conversations together. So I, as I mentioned before, knew Lakshmi through the Chicago music scene and had kind of followed her journey as she returned to Boston for an academic position and then started offering these Decolonizing Your Magic workshops at Housewitch, a space which had kind of been on my radar through Instagram for a while. So when I thought about getting in touch with both Paige and Cheryl of Witch the Vote and Lakshmi to talk about their work, of course, I wanted to bring this conversation to the forefront, this question of what is witchcraft today? What does it mean that witchcraft is all over Instagram and that it's all over the CW and that you can find it in all of these spaces? And frankly, it's really being whitewashed and sold back to people, in some senses even stolen from the people who have created and practiced these traditions for so long. So I wanted to circle back to my conversation with Lakshmi to consider some of these ideas and hear her thoughts on what magic is and means to her and what it takes to decolonize magical practices. So I definitely don't consider myself a witch, um, but I'm really, really interested in magic as a concept and as a practice and as a marker of identity. Um, from I, I guess what I say to people is like from an anthropological standpoint, but like I was, I've always been interested in like witchy shit, like since I was little. Um, when I was like eight or nine years old, like I would build little houses out of sticks for fairies under like the rhododendron bush outside my parents' house and like really believed they would come and, um, like really believed hard and like wrote letters to the tooth fairy and was like so happy when she wrote back. So I think I've just always been interested in like imaginary spaces. And I like, I think this is because I'm a Pisces. <laughs> So I'm like just a little bit like out there and like have one foot out the door when it comes to reality. So as far as like the role that these things play in my life, like I do read tarot for myself. I 
use tarot sometimes to help shape my thinking about important things that are happening in my life. I can, I'm an agnostic and um, I really believe that there are a lot of things in the world that we can't explain through what we call hard science, which I really think of as like a, a patriarchal way of like measuring the world that's like also deeply entwined with colonialism. Um, I think there are many ways of knowing. And so I guess magic is a way of knowing for some people and experiencing. Um, I became really interested in the intersection of the occult and like current new age practices and racial issues of race and ethnicity when I actually was getting ready to release my first album because the visual world I was kind of creating for that album was a very like gothy, dark sort of visual space. And I was collaborating with a lot of artists who were part of that scene. And that experience caused me to realize that that scene is extremely awful <laughs> and has all of the same issues when it comes to race and gender that you find outside of those scenes. So, I mean, I think, you know, white supremacy has a very strong foothold among practitioners of the occult. You know, there's like this like emphasis on like whiteness and being like a really pale, skinny witch. And um, so people who look like me who are dark skinned, like don't really have a place in that kind of scene. Um, basically, the kind of witchcraft and the kind of witch that we see in like kind of mainstream culture is like this white, young white woman. And um, that's completely not representative of the vast majority of people who consider themselves witches or practitioners of the occult, um, both in the United States and Europe, but like around the world. So, um, like, every now and then when I've done some freelance journalism, one of the topics I, like, I really enjoyed returning to was thinking about communities of color involved in this. So a couple years ago, I wrote a piece for Broadly on a group called Black Witch Chronicles, um, which is run by a woman named Lakeisha Harris, who used to live in Chicago, but now lives in, I think she's in New Orleans now. And it's basically an online coven that she organized for women of color, but specifically black women. And um, really, like, addresses, really thinks about witchcraft in terms of activism, um, that, like, the goal is not to just, like, make yourself feel good in, like, a cool salt bath with your crystals, but um, in her case, to like, address police brutality um, through through magic um, and to give back to the land through responsible, like, ways of living that don't harm the environment. And so... After thinking about this a lot over the last couple of years, I, in talking to the owner of House Witch, um, Erica Feldman, one day about her book, and she was talking to me about this concern that she had about her book, but also just sort of generally about all the cultural appropriation that happens um, among New Age communities, like with the burning of sage and stuff like that. Um, you know, I was saying, well, I think what we need to advocate or what you need to advocate is this idea of responsible witchcraft. Um, and so... After that, I ended up teaching a workshop at House Witch called Responsible Witchcraft, Decolonizing Your Magic, in which I essentially connected the relationship between a lot of these new age practices with cultural appropriation and then in turn with colonialism and explained like why cultural appropriation essentially replicates the power dynamics of colonialism. And that's why it's bad. <laughs> and if you sometimes leave things as just as it's cultural appropriation, people don't think of it as being actually harmful. But when you like contextualize it more broadly, then they're like, oh, okay, I see. And in that process also wanted to give people, I mean, namely white people, like some solutions for how to bypass you know, that kind of behavior. Um, but also encourage them to be willing to take criticism and understand that 
improving yourself in this regard is definitely a process. It's not something that happens overnight. And I think like white people definitely need to hear that in particular because they get really upset and offended if they feel like they're, they have to change. And so you always have to tell them it's okay to take your time. <laughs> None of us were born with the politics that we have at the, at this moment, but some of you need to do better than you're doing now. Um, and it's been pretty, it's been really well received. I don't know how successful it is. It's hard to like gauge change. I think for a lot of the people who attended the first conference, it was difficult. Like there was one woman who was a yoga instructor and like I tend to take a pretty hard line with yoga. I think like most yoga studios are basically just cultural appropriation studios and I hate them. But I also recognize the like importance of yoga as you know, a practice for improving one's health. And it's a very tricky line, right? But I think in the end, it comes down to who's benefiting from the dissemination of this knowledge. Um, I mean, what I'm doing isn't something new. I think other people have been talking about this for a long time. But what I am noticing is overall in the last year or two, especially, there's been a little bit of a shift in the discourse in mainstream, like witchy communities about this particular issue um, and about kind of the role that which stuff plays and like you know spreading white supremacy too and given the number of people who are interested in this kind of stuff and like the economics of it like if you just turn on like the cw at any point it's like every other show is like an occult themed show i mean it's like the implications of this stuff are like really significant even with like you know crystals and sage like the amount of sage that's harvested and the amount of mining that takes place to supply these places with like the rose quartz and their amethyst like has has already had significant environmental impacts and so it's, it's like not a negligible thing that like a couple of girls are into or whatever <laughs> like it's it has global consequences the other side of that which i try to bring up in my responsible witchcraft workshop is that not everyone wants to be called a witch like I mean, the Salem witch trials are like an obvious example of like one being called a witch is a bad thing. But I mean, even now there is significant persecution of people who not even people who call themselves witches, but people who other people describe as witches. And the lack of awareness about this is a problem. My advice to people who want to learn how to reduce the harm in their practices is to first read widely as much as you can ask questions when you're invited to. And I actually would say in general, wait until you're invited, right? If someone who is a Bruja, you know, and that's part of her heritage invites you into that practice, then learn it. Um, but if not, then don't. And instead support the people who do teach it or sell, you know, anything associated with it. Um, I think that's like really what it comes down to is this like, you know, I think white people really struggle with that um, and want to invite themselves into things. Um, and I always like kind of joke like the urge to colonize is really strong. But I think that's really what it comes down to. And sometimes you'll never get invited. And that's just how it goes. And that's also fair. I want to thank Lakshmi for doing the labor of speaking to white folks specifically about how they can and should decolonize their practices and unlearn white supremacists and colonial tactics in not only their witchcraft, but their day-to-day -day lives. I also can't amplify her advice enough. Read widely and read critically and then wait to be invited to ask questions and wait to be invited into practices that you may be interested in, but did not originate in white spaces and often are safety and solace to marginalized communities. 
I particularly appreciated her call out that the urge to colonize is deep in white people and we may not even recognize it as such, but something as simple as claiming the right to ask a question in a space that you have not been invited to or at a time that you've not been invited to ask is itself a colonial gesture and must be considered as such. This is hard work and it does take time, as Lakshmi mentions, but I'm hoping that part of what this podcast does is incite some of that reflection in its listeners who come from any variety of privileged backgrounds, particularly white listeners with white privilege, like myself. Next week, we're headed to Rhode Island to talk about fat activism and travel. And that episode is particularly close to my heart. And I will share a little bit of my journey toward body liberation and fat feminist activism in that episode. Don't forget to sign up for the 50 Feminist States newsletter at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. I hope you all have a wonderful week. And until then, I'll see you on the road. tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.